came from Miami, FLA. Hitchhiked away across USA. Plucked her eyebrows on the way, shaved her legs, and then he was a she. She says, Hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. Said, Hey, honey, take a walk on the wild side. Everybody's darling But she never lost her head Even when she was given head She says, hey babe Take a walk on the wild side Said, hey babe Take a walk on the wild side And the colored girls go Do, 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 here and a hustle there New York City is the place where they said hey babe take a walk on the wild side I said hey Joe take a walk on the wild side Sugar Pump Ferry came and hit the streets looking for soul food and a place to eat to the Apollo, you should have seen him go, go, go. They said, hey, sugar, take a walk on the wild side. I said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. All right. Huh. Jackie is just speeding away. Thought she was James Dean for a day. Then I guess she had to crash. Valium would have helped that fashion. I said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. I said, hey, honey, take a walk on the wild side. And the colored girls say, do, 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 Thank <laughs> you. 
One evening as the sun went down and the jungle fires were burning, down the track came a hobo hiking. He said, boys, I'm not turning. I'm heading for a land that's far away beside that crystal fountain. I'll see you all this coming fall in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, it's a land that's fair and bright. The handouts grow on bushes and you sleep out every night. The boxcars all are empty, the sun shines every day. I'm bound to go where there ain't no snow, where the sleet don't fall and the wind don't blow, in the big rock candy mountains. Oh, the buzzing of the bees in the cigarette trees, by the soda water fountain, by the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings, in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, you never change your socks. Little streams of alcohol come trickling down the rocks. Oh, the shacks. One evening as the sun went down and the jungle fires were burning, down the track came a hobo hiking. He said, boys, I'm not turning. I'm heading for a land that's far away beside that crystal fountain. I'll see you all this coming fall in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, it's a land that's fair and bright. The handouts grow on bushes and you sleep out every night. The boxcars all are empty, the sun shines every day. I'm bound to go where there ain't no snow, where the sleet don't fall and the wind don't blow. In the big rock candy mountains, oh, the... Buzzing of the bees in the cigarette trees By the soda water fountain By the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings In the big rock candy mountain In the big rock candy mountains You never change your socks Little streams of alcohol come trickling down the rocks Oh, the shacks all have to tip their hats The railroad bulls are blind there's a lake of stew and ginger ale too You can paddle all around it in a big canoe In the big rock candy mountains Oh, the buzzing of the bees in the cigarette trees By the soda water fountain By the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings In the big rock candy mountains In the big rock candy mountains The cops have wooden legs the bulldogs all have rubber teeth and the hens lay soft-boiled eggs. The boxcars all are empty and the sun shines every day. I'm bound to go where there ain't no snow, where the sleet don't fall and the wind don't blow. In the big rock candy mountains, oh, the buzzing of the bees in the cigarette trees by the soda water fountain. By the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings in the big rock candy mountain. In the big rock candy mountains, the jails are made of tin. You can slip right out again as soon as they put you in. There ain't no short-handled shovels, no axes, saws, nor picks. I'm bound to stay where you sleep all day Where they hung the jerk that invented work In the big rock candy mountain Oh, the 
buzzing of the bees in the cigarette trees by the soda water fountain by the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings in the big rock candy mountain
Okay, and good morning, mutineers. You're tuned to Mutiny Radio, and the name of the show is Labor and Love. <clears throat> the show that tells you how it is. Every Saturday from 10 a.m. to 12 noon. Labor news, radio, opinion, commentary, history, interviews, by, for, and about working people. Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is where you work, you're on the menu. And never, never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Good morning, everybody. I'm the B, your host on the Labor and Love Show. We're coming at you from 2781 21st Street, headquarters and studio of Mutiny Radio. MutinyRadio.fm. Tune in and listen to our amazing variety of programmers. Well, we started out there with, uh, let's see, we last had Buffy St. Marie and Not the Loving Kind. Song I love. I, I really like. She rocks. Before that, the Big Rock Candy Mountain, the uh, Hobo's Dream, where the, te- the Bulldogs have rubber teeth, where the jails are made of tin so you can get right out, sung by Pete Seeger. And before that, a tip to Gay Pride Month. Lou Reed with a national anthem. Walk on the Wild Side. We'll have another one, another song about Stonewall. And we're going to have a feature about Stonewall today on the show. Well, yeah, let's see. What else are we going to have? Um, we're going to go first strikes today. The first sit-down strike in history took place over 3,000 years ago, the first recorded sit-down strike in history. The first sit-down strike, successful strike in the United States, 1786. We've got Radio Labor, our worldwide labor connection. What's wrong with the AFL-CIO's new goal under their new president, Liz Schuler? In These Times takes a look at that. And Stonewall. Feature we have says, uh, Stonewall you know is a myth and that's okay. What happened at Stonewall? Okay, and then we've got um, 
free school lunches waiver about to run out. <laughs> well, the kids finally have enough to eat, but it's bad for the economy. So maybe they don't have to. Unionizing at Trader Joe's. Labor history in two minutes. And Juneteenth, holiday coming up tomorrow. June the 19th, what's that all about? Feature on Bayard Rustin, one of the forgotten figures of the civil rights slash labor movement. Starbucks closes a shop that just unionized, that just voted to uh, have a union. Hmm. And, uh, well, Lou Reed, we've already heard Lou. Take a walk on the wild side. My name is Bill Morgan, and um, I'm coming at you from the very heart of the Mission District, El Mero Mero. And we'll take a look now at some of our uh, credos. The things that make us go here on labor and love. Pity the Nation by Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Pity the nation whose people are sheep and whose shepherds mislead them. Pity the nation whose leaders are liars, whose sages are silent, and whose bigots haunt the airwaves. Pity the nation that raises not its voice except to praise conquerors and acclaim the bully as hero. Names to rule the world by force and by torture. Pity the nation that knows no other language but its own and no other culture but its own. Pity the nation whose breath is money and sleeps the sleep of the too well-fed Pity the nation, oh pity the people, allow their rights to erode and their freedoms to be washed away. My country, tears of thee, sweet land of liberty. Here's Robert Reich, and uh, this is a good one to keep, keep in mind. The richest 1% own half of the stock market. And the richest 10% own almost all of it, 92% of it. So it's a game for the richest 10%. And whose money are they using? Yours. The richest 1% own half of the stock market. So when someone brags about the stock market and how great it's going, they're not talking about the economy that 90% of Americans inhabit. Okay, that's Robert Reich. I'm trying to close him. Next one. Is one about abortion rights. 
abortion rights that are about to be struck down by the Supreme Court. Conservatives and the right know that they'll never win if a majority of the people vote on these things. So what they do is they control the organizations that oversee them. It's been stated over and over again that more than half of Americans in the 60% range think that women should have a right to free and safe abortions. Well, here's a comment about that. When the penalty for aborting after rape is more severe than the penalty for rape, that's when you know it's a war against women. Make no mistake, a state that criminalizes abortion but ranks 50th in the public education doesn't give a shit about children. Have to agree with that, huh? The decision, says Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the decision whether or not to bear a child is central to a woman's life, her well-being and dignity. When the government controls that decision for her, is being treated as less than a full woman, a full adult human being. Okay, let's see. All Facebook. Okay, so less than a human being. You don't have control over your own body in one day. Very soon, the Supreme Court is going to rule in favor of favor of what? Okay. This is the B, and those are some of our credos. Um... Let's see, we did Robert Reich. How about immigrants? Can I tell you a secret? I don't even care if they're undocumented immigrants in this country. Without social security numbers, they aren't privy to the welfare people claim they get. The vast majority of them are normal people trying to live a better life. This whole wall, deport the illegals, BS, is just the 1% convincing the working poor to blame a subset of the working poor for the fact that they're all poor. Instead of realizing the reason they are all poor is due to the vast income inequality and resource price inflation in combination with wage stagnation. Please use your brains. 
the existence of another poor person is not why you're poor. It's because the people who control everything use to increase your wages. And we don't want that one. This one I like. This is from Democratic Socialists of America, Los Angeles. You're not just you're just not that into politics. Your boss is, your landlord is, your insurance company is. And every day they use their political power to keep your pay low, raise your rent, and deny you coverage. Time to get into politics. Okay. Enough said. Those are our credos. That's what we believe here on this show. Let's get on with the show. We've got, for starters, let's start out with our worldwide labor connection, Radio Labor World Report. Okay. News from all over the world about what your fellow workers are doing. News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, June 17, 2022. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, the AFL-CIO in the United States elects its first woman president. The first unionist to leave the International Labor Organization is ending his term. The Labor Start report about union events and rapping. I'll strike back or fight back. It's the AFL-CIO. Y'all better be beware. Because we're fighting a man. God damn, put your hands together. Get in it. Because oh, united, we better. Together, we organize it. This is Radio Labor. In a time of rising fascism but union resurgence, the largest labor federation in the United States, the AFL-CIO, has elected Liz Schuller as its first woman president. Ms. Schuller, whose first job was as a union organizer for the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, became the Federation's secretary-treasurer in 2009. She became the Federation's acting president when Richard Trumka died of a heart attack in 2021. In a speech to the delegates attending the AFL-CIO Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, she promised to build on the momentum generated by recent union activism across the country. And I know we will rise to this occasion because we've proven that day after day. We've lived through the end of a presidential administration that trafficked in attacks on our workplace. But the strength of the membership prevailed. And in the face of an all-out assault on voting rights and a pandemic that changed the way we work and live, our members did what we always do. We got to work. Every day, we woke up and we chose action. We used our collective power 
to knock on doors and register voters and have workplace conversations, make phone calls, cast our ballots, rising up to defeat the petty politics of hatred and exclusion. We work to strengthen communities in their darkest days, to support our nation through the pandemic, through a racial justice reckoning, to organize in new places and take on some of the biggest corporations in the world. We used our voices to call out employers who were mistreating us. And I've seen you do that firsthand. The women at John Denaire Desserts in Santa Fe Springs, California, who spent more than 100 days on strike, calling for better pay and working conditions. The workers I met on picket lines at Stop and Shop and Nabisco and John Deere and Warrior Met. Every single one of those workers knew the value of their union and of banding together. And they weren't alone. Momentum behind working people continued to grow, reaching new heights during Striketober, when workers everywhere from John Deere to Kellogg's walked out to demand more from their employers. And that momentum has only kept building. Workers are organizing in new places, in new industries, and in new ways. People are waking up to the power of collective action. They're fed up. They're fired up. And they see unions as the answer. Support for unions hasn't been this high in decades. And working people are taking on giants like Amazon and Starbucks. And we will keep organizing until every worker who wants a union has one. We have to capture this momentum and use it to push us forward. Because I know, together, we have the power to build that better future, where everyone is included and no one is left behind. Where we bring women and people of color and young people from the margins to the center. Where we help workers respond to climate change and new technology and build the future of work through the lens of working people. Unions are where change starts in America. When all 12 and a half million of us unite around a common vision and a common goal, there is nothing that can stop us. The first trade unionist to head the international labor organization, Guy Ryder, has been celebrated for his leadership during his last ILO conference. The ILO is the UN specialized agency focused on matters of work in the world. The conference, which ended on Friday, June 10th, heard a number of speakers laud the achievements of Mr. Ryder during his 10-year tenure. One of those speakers was Catalin Pesquier, the head of the workers' group at the ILO. Guy, long ago you led very successfully the international trade union movement through stormy weathers. And let me tell everybody that has not been in a trade union organization that if you can manage the manifold challenges of keeping a global trade union movement together, which is like keeping frogs in a wheelbarrow, as we say in my country, you can lead any organization. The workers were very proud to see you elected 
to lead this very august house. It shows that all of us, representatives from all sides, can rise to the occasion of serving the public cause. As we see also many of our former trade union employer colleagues in government benches. When you were elected, Guy, I'm not sure you were aware of all the, the scale of challenges that was before you. To begin with, as also Renate said, the financial crisis with for workers, enormous unemployment, austerity measures and public spending on uh, social protection heavily under pressure. Then I have to mention, of course, the 2012 crisis, where the employers group challenged the right to strike in relation to Convention 87, shaking up our supervisory system to its very core. And then in 2015, an agreement, maybe more a truce, allowing the supervisory system to resume its functioning more or less properly, although the conflict is still lingering on and in my view now really needs to be resolved, but that is certainly also for the next Director General a challenge before him. And I should mention importantly the start of our work in the standard review mechanism which had six successful meetings but also challenges within them. At the end of your tenure, you had the pandemic, Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, but not only there, there is many wars raging in the world, Geo geopolitical tensions and mul the multilateral system under enormous pressure. You led the organization with a firm hand through all these storms, navigating the challenges with a strong focus on the tripartite mandate of the ILO for social justice and peace with tenacity, impartiality and integrity. There were important achievements. The inclusion of decent work and social protection in the UN Sustainable Development Goals. The coming about of the forced labor protocol in 2014, I think very important achievement. Recommendation 204 in 2015, which is about the transition of, uh, from the informal to the formal economy. Recommendation 205, very important now again on peace and resilience the adoption of a very important convention on violence and harassment in the world of work. And of course, this year we start a discussion on apprenticeships. This is the International Labour Organization. It is not the organization of the workers, but the organization for the workers. You were not the workers' DG, but everybody's DG. Thank you very much, Guy, on behalf of the workers' group in the ILO, but certainly also on behalf of all the workers of the world. Here with his report about union events is Labour Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. This week our top stories section included links to coverage of the International Domestic Workers Federation statement on International Domestic Worker Day, as well as events organized by unions around the world in solidarity with domestic workers facing sexual and other forms of harassment at work. We also covered a new initiative that should see growing cooperation between unions affected by China's so-called Belt and Road Initiative and this week's national general strike against Tunisia's increasingly authoritarian government and its plan to implement IMF-inspired cuts to social programs.
We also carried news of government attacks on journalists in Afghanistan, the impact of mine closures on Polish coal workers, why Belgium will see another general strike next week, and why a Liberian union is this year's Arthur Svensson Prize winner. For our Working Women page, our volunteers found yet another story of women professional sports players, in this case Australia's netball players, taking on the big businesses behind their sport. In other news about women workers, we carried items about a new initiative to track so-called invisible women in global supply chains and the American Federation of Labor's first-ever election of a woman president. A small sample of the stories appearing on our health and safety page in Newswire this week includes a number of stories detailing the rise in attacks on retail workers from countries like Canada, Switzerland, Malaysia, and South Africa. We also had coverage of the intense pressure that Welsh workers feel when ill as their employers push them to come to work rather than take a day of sick leave, even when they are entitled to it. We also had reports on a new coroner's investigation into the deaths of two Australian construction workers four years ago, and ongoing celebrations as unions mark the International Labour Organization's recognition of a safe and healthy workplace as a fundamental right for all workers. Our current photo of the week is of one of the many demonstrations held around the world on 8 June to demand an end to the repression of independent trade unions in Belarus. LabourStart hosts online solidarity actions at the requests of unions around the world. This week, we'd like to highlight urgent appeals for online solidarity with trade union activists in Belarus, Iran, Kazakhstan, and Pakistan. In just a few seconds, you can do your part in these struggles by sending a solidarity message. Look for details of these and other campaigns on our site. This is Derek Blackadder from LabourStart, reporting for Radio Labour. Now here's the hip-hop group which opened the AFL-CIO convention, Freestyle Love Supreme. We're especially excited to have y'all fired up because we need your words and ideas to do what we do. We're fully improvised. We don't know what's going to happen here either. That means that every sound you're about to hear... Ooh, every key about to be struck... There it is. Every word about to be spoken. You've got the fight, the powers that be. And every note about to be sung. Everybody's working for the weekend. Is happening for the first and last time right now. Which is where you, the incredible audience, come in. We're going to be asking for suggestions from you. There's a QR code where you can send in words. Any word that you think of that reminds you of the union or you think about with this incredible work you do, you can text and send us in. Uh, And then we're going to turn that into our little performance to get this day fired up. So for right now, we need a verb. Uh, A verb from you. That's an action word. You know? Like run, jump, gesticulate, circumnavigate. Those are verbs. And I'm going to actually come out and get some verbs from y'all. So raise your hand if you've got a verb you want us to use for our mic check. I'm going to see what it's like to actually come out into the audience. Any verb. We will not make anyone else rap. Yes, we have a brave audience volunteer right here. What's your verb? Organize. Love it. Love it. You know, I don't think we've ever done this one before. The word is organize. 
yeah, I'm coming in with the surprise. Cause Jelly Donut on mic one, I can organize. And uh, uh, I'm coming in and kicking with the rap on the track like the Empire. Yo, I'll strike back or fight back. It's the AFL CIO. Y'all better be beware. Cause we're fighting a man. God damn, put your hands together. Getting it. Cause oh, united we better. Together we organizing too. We can't organize together. It's exactly what we gonna do. And that's it. Labor news you can use. You can listen to our daily newscasts and features at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Okay, that's Radio Labor. And they mentioned that AFL-CIO, the biggest labor organization in the U.S. with 12.5 million people in it has elected a a new president named Liz Shuler. Let's find out a bit about Liz Shuler, who she is. Uh, President AFL, she's the first woman to be elected president of the Federation First person and youngest person to hold the position of secretary-treasurer. She was born in Portland, Oregon. Her mother worked there as a secretary. Although her father was a union member, clerical workers at PG&E were not unionized. She was raised in Gladstone, Oregon, active in the Democratic Party. First job in the labor movement was as an organizer for the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. Always one of the most militant unions. She worked as a lobbyist for the IBEW and... uh, Moved to Washington, D.C. A local note, she led the AFL-CIO's successful effort to defeat Proposition 226, which would have denied dues checkoff to public employees belonging to unions and required all union members in the state to annually give their that that proposition was backed by then Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, but it was soundly defeated. Active in the Women's Campaign Fund, a political action committee which supports pro-choice women. On and on, look it up if you would. Liz Schuler, the new president of the AFL-CIO. Okay, we're going to have a couple of things now about the oldest sit-down strike in history and the oldest sit-down strike in the United States. Oldest sit-down strike in history. When would you think it might be? 
Middle Ages, Roman times. First labor strike in recorded history took place in the 12th century BCE, 3,400 years ago, give or take a few. Strike was recorded on papyrus, discovered in Egypt, and though it is damaged and incomplete, it is the only record of the strike in existence. All records of this strike refer to dates with reference to the then current pharaoh, Ramses III, during the 20th, 29th year of his reign, about 1170 BCE. Artisans tasked with building the necropolis burial chambers of King Ramses III were repeatedly struck, apparently complaining of insufficient rations. Okay, now this is a giant public works project that the pharaohs commissioned to honor themselves. It's unclear exactly why the artisans were not receiving their normal rations. Even though there is evidence that the shortage of food was largely the result of corruption in the ruling class, the custom was a monthly ration of grain, but implicit in the document is the sense that the ration had frequently been delayed during Ramses III's reign. In the 29th year, the grain did not arrive until the 23rd day of the month. An Amenacht, an artisan and probably the scribe that recorded the strike on papyrus, complained to the local government authorities. Their rations during the fifth month had been more than four weeks late, and the sixth month's rations were delivered two weeks into the month. Workers had had enough. They simply laid down their tools and marched out of the necropolis they were building. According to Amenach, the supervisors had no idea where they'd gone. They had never seen anything like this before. Marched to the local government officials, demanded that they be paid their food rations. When the local elders agreed they should be paid, they were unable to provide the rations. Someone had perhaps taken the rations and sold them. The next day, the workers marched toward the temple of Ramses II and were able to speak to the vizier, the mayor, was finally able to secure a ration payment for the workers, though it was not a full payment. Satisfied, the workers returned to their labor. There's evidence that the success of this strike compelled the workers to use it over and over again throughout the reign of Ramses. As the strikes continued regularly, local government officials began to increase the number of workers they hired to deliver food and supplies to the workers. So it was obvious to the workers that they were being heard. It's clear that the tactic was so new to all the authority figures in ancient Egypt that they were completely unprepared to deal with it in any other way than to simply attempt to appease the workers. 
were very successful in their campaign. One of the first of its kind. Now, about the first strike in the United States as America became the United States of America became its own country. Relief from British oppression as a result of the American Revolution did not bring relief from terribly long working hours and equally short pay to American working men. Typical was the condition of New York workers who were paid 25 cents to 50 cents a day in 1789 for days running from sunup to sundown. Since they were paid by the day, employers preferred to have their men work in the seasons when the days were longest and to lay them off at other times. Many of the small tradesmen, cartmen, Day laborers and others dwell upon the borders of poverty, commented the Daily Advertiser at the time. There were strikes before there were unions, as conditions were unbearable. Among the first to engage strikes were the New York printers, who in 1778 demanded an addition of $3 per week in our present small pittance. They won without having to strike. But in 1786, their Philadelphia brothers made history with the first recorded strike for a dollar a day, $6 a week. We will support such of our brethren, they resolved, as shall be thrown out of employment on account of their refusing to work or less than $6 a week. The turnout, as it was called, was successful. Philadelphia house carpenters lost a strike for a 10-hour day. Baltimore sailors and New York carpenters were among those who struck in the next few years. None of these resulted in a permanent organization. Workers disbanded the organizations as soon as the battle for the immediate demand was over. In some cases, workers tried to use their mutual aid societies as substitutes for union as we know them. When state legislators passed laws forbidding this practice, unions were formed. Philadelphia shoemakers set up their first local craft union in 1792, lasted for one year. So there's your first strike, recorded strike in history, and there's your first strike in U.S. strikes, I should say, in U.S. history. And uh, this is something we need to comment on. People get very pessimistic about the future of unions and worker organizations. The numbers are quite low at this point. That doesn't mean the whole idea of unions or the whole idea 
of workers organizing is gone. It's in a lull for sure. And the reason I'm not concerned about it, except for the numbers, is that employers keep creating the situations that call for unions. If workers were well paid and treated with respect and included in the disposition of the profits that they create, there would be need for unions, of course, but there would not be need for things like strikes and fighting in the street. Those people fighting out in the street, like last week we reviewed the Memorial Day strikes of Little Steel, those people are out there fighting for their lives. They're fighting for their honor. They're fighting for their families. They're fighting for their futures. And as long as employers and corporations try to take those things away, there will be strikes. There will be unions. There will be organizing. There will be fights in the streets, yes. Ah, okay. Let's listen to a little Miles Davis here and take a little break. Thank you. 
Okay, I'm just looking over uh, an article about the goals of the FLCIO's new administration by a guy named Hamilton Nolan in these times. And uh, FLCIO wants to add one million, one million workers to unions. They got all their member unions to sign in on it. But this guy Nolan is saying that's terribly low. That means only about 8% of all new workers in that period, uh, 2030. That's 1 million out of 12 million. And uh, his point is that the the AFL-CIO is tying itself to a very low target. Thing, it's like a guy who has never gone to a gym before to exercise is going to go to the gym and uh, lift one pound every day. It's a doable thing, but it's terribly low. So check it out. That's... Uh, Hamilton Nolan, uh, one of the excellent writers who covers union stuff. Just in passing, free school lunches waivers set to end amid rising food prices. Free school lunch waivers that the federal government authorized in March 2020 in response to the coronavirus pandemic, are set to end June 30th amid high inflation. Is on Axios. Experts warn that many families facing the ending waivers and rising food and fuel prices could struggle to feed their children. Congress and the Department of Agriculture does not act quickly enough, according to NBC News. Schools still provide meals to many children and teens in low-income areas over the summer. Families may have to resume paying for school lunches at a time when school districts are also preparing to raise the price of meals because of shortages and rising food prices digging into their bucks into their budgets. <sighs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, people out there listening, the ultimate, one of the ultimate things that damn capitalism is that something like food for children is a commodity and it's treated as a commodity. And it's treated as a political football. Several senators signed the letter this week urging congressional leadership to extend the child nutrition waivers in any upcoming packages. Okay, the beat goes on. Listen to a little music, then we'll get into uh, Stonewall. We've got our college 
correspondence calling in today. <sighs> That's a hard one to to stomach that <clears throat> no pun intended. Here's one for a mom who just had a baby.
Okay, that was a long set. Um, that last one was uh, Oscar Grant. Song about Oscar Grant. Injustice, Oscar Grant song. Oscar Grant, of course, was a young African-American man, 20, 21 years old. Coming back on BART from a New Year's celebration. He was pulled off the train. He and his friends had thrown down on the ground at the BART station, handcuffed, and then murdered. BART cop put a gun to his head and pulled the trigger, later claiming that he mistook his gun for a taser. That was a that was a one that other police used later on. I think that might have been the first time it was used. A young man, not you know, not a paragon of virtue. He uh, like a lot of people, he he smoked weed. He was late for his job. He. Lied to people and said he was doing better than he was. Probably ashamed of losing his job or whatever. All this is human stuff. The night of his murder, he made a connection with a software developer. Maybe things were going to look up for him. And he had an eight-year-old daughter murdered. Pop got three and a half years off, I think. Johannes Ezerly, I can't remember the name. Okay. For that, the Sultans of Swing about a rock band trying to make it, playing a date and uh, working their day jobs at the same time, those people who make music for you. And then before that, we had Donna Summerheart for the money about the invisible workers in your lives. The people who clean and mop and sweep and polish, cook your food for you, serve it up to you. They work hard for their money and you better treat them right. Okay, uh, I want to get on to this Stonewall feature now. Before we talk to our uh, college correspondents, Stonewall You Knew is a myth. Okay, let's quickly. Stonewall is a place in New York, a bar frequented by gay people at a time when gay people were under a tremendous pressure not to come out, to live secret lives. and to be ashamed of who they were. They were routinely hassled by police and uh, bigoted people. Uh, it's kind of a liberation activity. One night at Stonewall Bar, the cops came in 
to hassle people and arrest them. And uh, they fought back. Here it is. Stonewall, you know, is a myth, and that's okay. Let's overlooked LGBT elders, but also Jason Mraz threw the first brick at Stonewall. Judy Garland threw the first brick. Scarlett Johansson. It's become an inside joke about queer icons and straight allyship. Fifty years after the police raided the Stonewall Inn and its patrons mounted a resistance on the street outside, I still didn't know the answer to this question: Who threw the first brick at Stonewall? What I did know is that I had heard this story over and over again. The gay rights movement was born in 1969 at a beloved gay bar called the Stonewall Inn. The Stonewall riot began when a drag queen, bereft by the death of Judy Garland, threw a brick at a police officer. The riot culminated in a rocket-style kickline of drag queens facing down tactical police in riot gear. It's a beautiful story, but it's not exactly true. So. I gathered some people who were at Stonewall in 1969, some historians who had spent years studying LGBT history, and some contemporary queer writers to ask them, what's wrong with this account of Stonewall? They helped me break it down bit by bit. It didn't begin at Stonewall. Before Stonewall, we had the Daughters of Belitis, we had the Mattachine Society. There was the sip-in at Julius's. And the movement in the world dates back to 1897 in Berlin, with the founding of Magnus Hirschfeld's organization, which was the first gay rights group. So if gay rights didn't begin at Stonewall, why was Stonewall important? Because it led to the creation of the gay liberation movement. Gay Liberation Front was born out of the ashes of Stonewall. Uh, gay Liberation Front is the, literally why we have everything we have today. They planned a march on the first anniversary of Stonewall. And people forget that there were three Pride parades. I was at the one in Los Angeles in 1970. We had a big jar of Vaseline on a float. It was a really in-your-face float. Oh, wow. Now here's a fundamental question about Stonewall. Was it a riot? And what we did is we were cheering and dancing in the street. That's not a riot. It was just a loud and bawdy, fun group of guys until it turned into a riot. It is called a riot, an uprising, a rebellion. I like the word rebellion, not overthrow the government rebellion, rebellion from within. Next, was the Stonewall Bar as idyllic as some media portrays it to have been? The Stonewall Inn was a safe haven for the queer community. But it was a dump. It was a hellhole. Dirty, rundown, mafia run. A mafia sleazy bar. And they watered down drinks. Watered down drinks. There was a much better bar called the Cherry Lane. The tenth of always. Cookies. So the Stonewall Inn was neither New York's only gay bar, nor an especially beloved institution. Now, let's talk about that drag queen who started it all. They said that she threw the first shot glass at Stonewall and it was the shot glass heard around the world. One of the persistent myths about Stonewall is that Marsha threw the first cocktail glass. Marsha herself said in an interview that I did with Marsha, I didn't get there until two. I was uptown, I didn't get downtown until about two o'clock, because when I got downtown, the place was already on fire and it was a raid already. Marsha P. Johnson's friend and fellow activist, Sylvia Rivera, is also sometimes credited with starting Stonewall. Sylvia Rivera is known for throwing the first bottle at the Stonewall riots. Sylvia Rivera herself said in 2001, I have been given the credit for throwing the first Molotov cocktail, but I always like to correct it. I threw the second one. I did not throw the first one. First of all, that comment was probably tongue-in-cheek. Second of all, it's not certain that Molotov cocktails were thrown at all. 
regardless of what Rivera and Johnson did at Stonewall, their impact on the trans and gay movements can't be overstated. When I see people saying Marsha and Sylvia were the ones who threw the first bricks, I want to remember them in a way that feels honest because their legacies extend far beyond that night. However, there was a gender non-conforming person that several witnesses credit with catalyzing Stonewall. She was very butch and she was tough and the police were being rough with her and she was really fighting back. We have four independent accounts who said that this woman's fight with the police is what tipped the scales and set it all off. She called out to the crowd, what are you doing? Why are you just standing there? Why don't you do something? Some people say that woman was Stormy DeLarvier, a lesbian who worked as a bouncer at the time. DeLarvier sometimes took credit and sometimes denied her role, but so far there's been no conclusive proof of who exactly that butch woman at Stonewall was. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Judy Garland. Judy Garland's funeral took place at Campbell's funeral home on the afternoon before the events at Stonewall. The patrons of the Stonewall used their grief over Judy's death to rise up and fight back. But were the two events related? The worst question that people ask about Stonewall is whether it was caused by the death of Judy Garland. If one looks at the accounts published in 1969, there's only one account that mentioned Stonewall and Judy Garland, and that was written by a right-wing columnist to mock the movement. You're trivializing our anger and oppression of 2,000 years to a singer. So I went to Judy Garland's room, and a lot of Stonewall queens did. Oh, it was like Noah's Ark. All of Judy's fans, God bless Judy Garland, but no, she was not the cause of the Stonewall riot. No. So now, let's talk about that brick. One of the most derided representations of the first brick came from the 2015 movie Stonewall. Gay power! All anyone wants to talk about is who threw the first brick? Who threw the first brick? People climbing, I threw the first brick. First off, it asks where bricks thrown. Where were those bricks found? Apparently there was a construction site that had a pile of bricks. I heard that last week. Did they show you a picture of that construction site? It's possible they were pulling rocks from the street. I haven't determined where that would have been unless it was in the park. If there's a tree pit, they're usually lined with something. Around this tree, there were these stones. I pulled up the stones. I know I threw stones. I don't know if I threw a brick. I doubt it. I think I was a stones man. So objects were thrown that may or may not have been bricks. But amidst all this chaos in the streets, did they really form a kick line while facing down police in riot gear? No, there was not a kick line at Stonewall. There were many kick lines at Stonewall. And I'll be glad to give you the lyrics. We are the Stonewall girls. We wear our hair in curls. We don't wear underwear. To show our pubic hair. It was done to the, the tune of uh, the Howdy Doody theme. It's Howdy Doody time. You're right, it is. All right, so we've worked out a framework for what happened at Stonewall that many people can maybe mostly agree on. But why does this even matter? Why are we nitpicking this to death? Because when we talk about what happened at Stonewall 50 years ago, we're also talking about issues the LGBT community is still wrestling with today, namely transphobia and racism. There's one graphic I'm thinking about in particular, trans women of color throwing bricks at cops gave me the right to get married. I think a lot of people cling on to these narratives because trans women of color are often already sidelined. I mean, there were some individual people of color, but it was not a, a group of trans people of color who started the writing. If, if people start telling stories 
not as they were, but as they would like them to be. That procedure can be used by anybody for any purpose. So I think that we need to be consistent in the truth. If we are demanding that our history be respected, then we have to respect it ourselves. You have to uh, apply the same criteria to our history that it be worthwhile, that it be accurate, that it be well-researched. We should recognize our warts as well as our, our flowers, as it were. I mean, I think historical erasure is real. How do we tell a history of something when our lives aren't in archives? Speculative fiction and historically informed fiction, to me, are ways to answer that question. And it doesn't have to be true to be meaningful. Stonewall was a messy evening. LGBT histories are very messy. I think naming that doesn't take away from the importance of what happened. I don't think anyone threw the first brick at Stonewall. And at this point, I don't care who threw the first brick. Oh, I don't think it matters. And it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter. It's okay that we don't know. If it wasn't a brick, it was a rock. If it wasn't a rock, it was a purse. If it wasn't a purse, it was a shoe. If it wasn't a shoe, it was a glass. If it wasn't a glass, it was a dirty look. It was all of those things. It wasn't just that day, it was days before, and it was many years after. It's 50 years later, and we still can't agree on exactly what happened that night. But that's all right. Stonewall was about people reclaiming their own narratives from those that told them they were sick or pitiful or didn't even exist. Part of telling your own story means living openly and partying at parades, but it also means contending with other people's versions of that story, even if theirs doesn't match perfectly with yours. As Chrysanthemum Tran said, that can be messy, and that's okay. I love a messy party. Hey, this is Shane. I produced this video. We've spent a month covering Pride, so check out all of our coverage. And uh, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hey, it's Clint Boyer. Be sure to watch NASCAR. All right, so who threw the first rock at Stonewall? Who cares? Right? Is it really important? Uh, these people think it's not. And they ought to know. What's important is that Stonewall was a moment in history, not the first moment, certainly not the last, where gay people stood up and demanded to be treated with respect. Demanded. That's the key word. And um, Stonewall is something that now is part of our history, and it's not going away. Anytime a group of people stand up for their rights, everyone is enhanced. So now people say, well, what is this Stonewall? Yeah, I thought this was a labor show. Well, who was it? Was it rich people out there? Maybe there were a few. But it was mostly people like you and me, working people, trying to make their lives better. More power to them. We're going to talk now to our... Uh, Campus Correspondence, um, Pita and Yemen, uh, students at UC Davis, um, probably in their last months at UC Davis. We'll have to see where they go from here. And we're going to call them up and we're going to see what they have to say about the future. Hello? Oh, no. 
Hi, Vita. How are you? Hi, Yemen. Hello. We're doing you, well. I hope We're you're doing, doing well. well. How's the weather up there? It's nice. It's not as warm as before. It's actually really, like, cooler now. 71 degrees. Last time I was up there, you could have fried an egg on the sidewalk. <laughs> Jesus. Really? Yeah, that Friday was bad. Yeah. That Friday was up to 105. Well, let me congratulate you again, both of you, actually, of your yeah. graduation from uh, university. Well, especially Vita, because she had just graduated. I graduated uh, a little earlier. But yeah, Vita, thank you and congratulations, Vita. That was quite a celebration <laughs> and a ceremony. And it was yeah. really nice to see you go through that. It okay. was a nice time. Okay, I so as, as two recent graduates of uh, University of California, I'd like to ask you to um, think about it and See if there's anything that makes you optimistic or hopeful about the future. We've got a lot of uh, things going on that aren't exactly, you know, cheerful, like uh, the Supreme Court about ready to knock down Roe v. Wade. Another war in Ukraine. Wars actually all over the all over the world. Mm-hmm. Crazy people here in our own country pulling guns on each other and murdering people doesn't sound good but we got to have hope so i'm wondering what gives you guys hope or optimism about the future well uh i was talking to yaman about it earlier that i think a lot of younger people young people who are like teenagers or older are actually you know in some ways you know uh, it's hard to relate with them and they have ways that are really different or that don't make sense, I guess. But then there are a lot of them and many of them who understand important social issues on a deeper level. And although I think like they could be, you know, uh, corralled into doing something like bad because they're all following mob mentality. So, you know, I'm not sure really how much, uh, they really know or care about these movements or if they're just saying it to say it. But I've seen a lot of representation from the younger generation in terms of that, like in terms of social justice movements or like feminism, labor, uh, politics, the Roe v. Wade, of course, like a woman's right. Like I think men and women have both changed a lot to hopefully be more egalitarian towards each other. But I know there are, of course, exceptions, and that isn't the case always, but you have to have, like, some hope. You know? Like Harvey Milk said, you have to give them hope. Yeah. So. Very interesting. You went to school with these Gen Zers. Yeah, I went to school with people, and I felt like they were really smart or, like, were really on point or knew a lot about history of important events. So, I mean, I was impressed all the time by my younger peers and i think that you know if harnessed correctly like they can really do a lot of good so i'm hopeful you know i think also like poverty or adversity leads sometimes to people maybe having a character because they know what it's like or they have empathy and there's a lot of poor people or hard-working people who you know have good character so i think that 
I think that things will be good in the future. I mean, as long as people just don't get distracted and don't let things happen, you know. Okay, Yemen, how about you? How do you feel about all this? Well, okay, so that is a pretty a great question, and it's very, you know, it's very deep. So I would like to voice my response in not an analogy, but just a, you know, it's a scenario. Mm-hmm. So I just think, you know, throughout all this BS, if it comes down to it, it'll be like, you know, like our, our favorite movies and our favorite hero movies. It's going to come down to a group of people um, that just aren't willing to do the wrong thing. And I trust in that. And so... Uh, people's human character. Yeah, people's human character. And I think that at the end of the day, if you scheme for evil, like, you're going to have to, you know, involve people and people are always going to take the high road, um, in my opinion, ultimately. And also, every action causes a reaction. So if there's a reaction of, like, negative things, there has to be a reaction of positive, too. I, I think you, you guys have... Um pointed out a real important, maybe the, the key to uh, a lot of problems is people of conscience doing what's right. Yeah. Like That's even right. Mike Pence, right? <laughs> yeah. Mike Pence wouldn't do what Trump wanted him to do because he knew it was wrong. Right. That's probably the yeah. only thing I'll ever agree with him on, but yeah. it's important, right? He, yeah, he no, did of course. what he thought was right. Yeah, you know, that's a good example. And, you know, the example of, you know, the police officer that was risking his life, um, and it was between a left and a right at the White House. You know what I mean? Right. It was a left and a right, and it was a split-second decision. And good prevailed. You know what I mean? Okay. Well, um, thank you very much again for your points of view. And um, I hope you have a good day. Thank you. And thank you for for, uh, calling up because it really does make the program a lot better. Yeah. To talk to real live people. Yeah, it is nice. Yes. Okay, well, we'll call you later. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye, Vita. Bye, Yemen. Okay, so that was our campus correspondence, Vita in Yemen, uh, pointing out a lot of things. You know, um, Vita's idea that there are a lot, there are a lot of good people out there who bode bode well, bode well for the future. And Yemen's point that. Uh, People of conscience, people of conscience have to step up and do the right thing. How about labor history in two? And then we'll get out of here. We got, well, we got several. Fight for free speech in San Diego. This is labor history in two.
On this day in labor history, the year was 1924. 300 members of the International Workers of the World, or Wobblies, gathered at their union hall in San Pedro, California. They were holding a benefit for two of their members who had been killed in a railway accident. For the past year, the KKK had targeted the San Pedro IWW members. The Wobblies had led a strike of longshoremen the year before. Famous socialist author Upton Sinclair had visited San Pedro to address the striking members of the marine transport workers. Known for his books such as The Jungle, Sinclair wrote novels depicting the harsh conditions of industrial work. To begin his speech, Sinclair planned to read the Bill of Rights. As he was reading the First Amendment, the one guaranteeing the right to free speech, he was arrested by police. The police and KKK members continued to harass the striking workers. Even after the strike ended, anger against the IWW simmered. That anger boiled over when KKK thugs stormed the benefit meeting, beating IWW members. They tarred and feathered some. They also flung scalding hot coffee at two children, who had to be hospitalized due to their injuries. A photographer who captured images of the injured children wrote a description of the events. Andrew Kruglis, age 9 is in serious condition, he was the first one out of the hall. As the fiends came rushing in, Andrew ran as fast as he could for a block when overcome by a man in blue who threw a pot of boiling grease on his bare legs. In addition to the injuries caused, the raiders also destroyed the contents of the Union's Hall. The violence at San Pedro was just one chapter of ongoing harassment against IWW organizing up and down the West Coast. Labor History in Two, brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1990. About 400 janitors were protesting at Century City, a large office complex in Los Angeles. It was part of SEIU's Justice for Janitors campaign in L.A. The janitors had gone out on strike against international service systems. The strike had started on May 30th, and despite promises that they would not interfere with the protest, the LAPD showed up wielding batons. They demanded the janitors immediately vacate the premises. But instead of dispersing, the protesters linked arms, and in a show of solidarity, they marched toward the 150 police dressed in riot gear. Police responded by savagely beating protesters, clubbing people on the ground as they tried to stand back up. One demonstrator, who was three months pregnant, suffered a miscarriage caused by the police beating. The media recorded the brutal attack. Coverage spurred outrage at the actions of the police that day. It also made the janitors more determined than ever to win a contract. Public pressure resulted in a new contract with a $2 an hour raise for the janitors. They also won family health care coverage. SEIU filed suit over the police conduct, and three years later, the L.A. City Council awarded the union more than $2.3 million. But the police did not have to admit guilt for the attack. 200 janitors gathered on the steps of City Hall to await the settlement decision. Joel Vasquez, one of the janitors who was beaten on that day, addressed the crowd saying, The people who are supposed to protect us didn't. They beat us. Today has become a day of commemoration of the janitor's struggle. In 2001, janitors gathered in L.A. to remember that past victory and rally for economic justice. One marcher carried a sign that read, What's dignity? New shoes for my daughter, a birthday party for my son. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show.
I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, Pinkerton detectives arrived at job sites across the U.S. to escort workers off the premises. No, it was not a railroad or a coal mine in labor's distant past. It was at the offices of what was once the largest computer seller in the United States. And the year was 2000. Inacom was filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. The computer giant had been built on buying computers in large quantities and reselling them. But increasingly, computer manufacturers such as Dell began to sell directly to customers. They eliminated the middleman. Unable to adapt, Inacom's finances were a wreck. They brought in the Pinkertons to usher away employees and change the locks on the office doors. The Pinkertons arrived at the Atlanta office at 2.30. They showed up in Jacksonville at 4. Another former employee recalled his experience saying on June 16th, they came into the Buffalo office around five with Pinkerton security and a locksmith and said, basically, you've got five minutes to grab your personal belongings and leave the building. The bewildered employees were given few answers. The Pinkertons posted signs with an 800 number on the doors they had just locked. Then, at 4.26 p.m., more than 5,000 employees were sent an email from the company asking them to call that same number. When they did, a recorded message began to explain the events of the day. The employees learned that they would not receive their final paychecks, and they had all been fired. But the news got worse. The message went on, We advise you begin exploring alternatives for medical and disability insurance. The message also said, Inacom apologizes for the sudden disruption and expresses its appreciation for your dedicated service. Employees were left to scramble for new jobs and insurance without any warning whatsoever. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. All right, we got to get out of here. It's about time. Um... Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Remember that if you don't have a seat at the table like those people at Inicom, you're on the menu. They could kick you out whenever they want. Never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. Only a waste of time. Labor and Love Radio, wishing you a happy week, good week, and good work. Come on back at 10 o'clock next Saturday and listen to Labor and Love or look on our archives, mutinyradio.fm, archives slash radio slash labor and love radio. Let's listen to. Japanese guitarist Kerry Mirashi.
Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> International banking, diplomatic cables, nuclear missile launch codes all rely on unbreakable encryption. What if these codes were no longer secure? That nightmare scenario seems to be a reality. A shadowy underworld syndicate is auctioning off access to the world's encrypted secrets. The only plausible explanation for this ability? Someone has achieved the holy grail of code-breaking quantum computing. Veteran CIA agent John Clooney must track down the perpetrators and retrieve this technology for the U.S. government, and it's personal, as the Enigma brokers have already cost the lives of his fellow agents, perhaps including his partner. John Wessick's The Enigma Brokers is the first book of the John Clooney thrillers. Get it on Amazon. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to Joke Workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! $4.99. I was just leaving the theater. Convertible. 1969 gold Cadillac with the white material and I drove it up here. And I started to do some thinking. And I'm on the freeway and I'm having a really, really good time. Flat black glass. Smoking big spliffs and cruising. Saturday noon to two. On the freeway. Good feeling. I am a John Clooney's friend and ally become a dangerous enemy? 
Private investigator Anton Gruber has been CIA agent John Clooney's trusted aide. Clooney may have questioned Gruber's taste in cuisine, but never his loyalty, until Gruber double-crossed him. Escaping with his life, Clooney is sidelined while his superior attempts to discover how Gruber was compromised. The investigation delves into Gruber's astonishing past, from his unpleasant days as an East German border guard to life as a narcotics agent, from his time in the tango clubs of Buenos Aires to a trip up the Amazon in search of Nazi gold. John Wessex's The Prague Deception is the third book of the John Clooney thrillers. Get it on Amazon. Hey, Mutineer Stolowitz here. Have you ever listened to Labor and Love on Saturday mornings, 10 to noon, with Bill Morgan? It's a really excellent show, one of my favorites here at the station. And it's all about service. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but we got to serve somebody. And Bill understands the virtue of service as the heart and soul of the labor movement better than a lot of people I know. And it's one of the reasons I love to listen to him. He breaks down socialism, democracy, protest history, workers' news, and the power of unions. Along with that, he serves up an excellent mix of jazz, Latin, gospel, hip-hop, and traditional folk ballads. Great stuff. Check it out. Labor and Love is every Saturday, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Serve somebody. Meals on Wheels is dedicated to fostering independent living for San Francisco seniors by providing hot, nutritious meals delivered to their homes. They're committed to fostering independent living for as long as possible. For more information, please call Meals on Wheels at 415-920-1111. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. Are you looking for local handcrafted leather goods? Look no further than Skin on Skins, a local mission a leather working shop. All original pieces handcrafted for you. Jackets, belts, purses, jewelry, everything made out of leather. You need your bicycle seat fixed? You want it in cool leather? Under can do it. You have a motorcycle that you want to fit out with side bags and cool stuff talk to under go to skinonskins.com that's s-k-i-n-o-n-s-k-i-n-s.com you just went to Folsom Street Fair and you don't have enough leather go see under everything is handcrafted and understated quality fine leather handcrafted goods for all of your needs he also does fixes maybe you love that jacket he'll put the zipper back in Talk to Under at SkinOnSkins.com at 20th and Mission. Check them out at SkinOnSkins.com. Loose that man, loose that man, and let him go. Let me tell you quickly now about Second Man Ollie and Johnny L. Jones sponsors, the thrift store at Deal Avenue and Sibrian Road. Miss Brenda is doing a beautiful and outstanding job with this thrift store. If you want stoves, bed, refrigerators, washing machines, uh, furniture, Miss Mapp has it. And she has it at a price that you can afford to pay and take home. Why don't you call Mrs. Mapp right now quickly 
at 404-610-6114. and get all of the furniture that you need. It's appointed unto man to die, and after death the judgment. And when death strikes our home, we need a funeral home that will come to our homes and talk to our families and give us I think teenagers like songs many times for the music, but I think in every song, whether it's rock or roll, gospel, spiritual, blues, jazz, or whatever it is, 